One of the central principles of Judaism is that of Bechir of free choice, free will. As many thinkers, most notably the Rambam, celebrate this idea as the cornerstone of a religious and really a meaningful life. After all, if one has no free choice, what would be the point of reward and punishment? Really, what would be the point of life? What gives life meaning is that we have the free will, we have the free choice to do the right thing, and when we do so, we deserve to be rewarded. But we also have the free will, the free choice to do the wrong thing, and then, of course, we would deserve to be punished. This central tenant of Jewish faith is severely challenged by a number of psukim that are presented quite clearly by the Torah in the Exodus story, in the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim story. Specifically, we have a very famous pasuk in this week's parsha in Parag Zion, Pasuk Gimel, where Hashem tells Moshe, Bani Eksheh, Es lev paro. Hashem says quite clearly, I will harden Paro's heart. As a result, we hear so that I can bring more wonders, more signs into the land of Egypt. There are other times where this is mentioned, including later on in the Perek, where it's a little bit uh, more vague as to whether Paro hardens his own heart or Hashem hardens his heart. But this initial Pasuk that we mentioned, Perek Zion, Pasuk Gimel, is quite explicit. And therefore it is no surprise, given how clear the Torah is, ostensibly, seemingly, that Hashem is hardening Paro's heart, at the same time how directly that contradicts such a fundamental principle of Jewish faith, it's no surprise that thinkers, including Ibn Ezra, Ramban, here in our Parsha, ask, how do we understand these psukim? If HaKadosh Baruch Hu had hardened Paro's heart, so where was his sin? What makes Paro a wicked person? Why was Paro punished? If the Torah is telling us explicitly that it really wasn't his fault, that Hashem had hardened his heart. So there are a number of answers to the question, but let's focus on three key approaches that are mentioned by the Rishonim. One approach suggested by the Abarbanel, as well as the Akedas Yitzchak, is that in fact, despite the simple reading of the text, it does not mean to convey that Hashem actually hardened Paro's heart. Rather, what it means is, that by pausing in between each of the various plagues, that allowed the possibility for Paro to deny that they were divine punishments. If, on the other hand, the plagues had gone non-stop, one after the other after the other, without any break, they would have been so overwhelming that Paro would have had no choice but to believe and to acknowledge, should I say, that they are coming from God as a punishment for enslaving the Jewish people. However, given that they stopped, that there was intermittent stops in between the plagues, this allowed Paro to rationalize that they weren't punishments at all. After all, if these were coming as a punishment for enslaving the Jewish people, why was the blood stopping, or why were the frogs stopping when the Jewish people were still enslaved? Therefore, it must be, Paro rationalized himself, some other natural source or cause for the plagues. Because Hashem delivered the plagues in this way deliberately, which allowed for the possibility of Paro to make the wrong decision and make the wrong analysis, that's what the Torah is describing as Hashem hardened his heart. In, meaning to say, because of the way Hashem brought the Makos, that's what allowed Paro to make the wrong decision. Had God brought the Makos in a different way, in a non-stop fashion, then Paro would have had no choice but to believe them. In that sense, 
in, but only in that sense could it be said that Hashem hardened, quote-unquote, Paro's heart. But he didn't really take away free choice. He just brought the plagues in a way that allowed Paro to make the wrong decision. A second approach is suggested by the Ramban and the Svorno here, as well as in the Sefer Karim, that in fact, Paro's free choice was never taken away. However, the plagues, each and every one of them, were so overwhelming and so painful that Paro would have given in, but not because he freely wanted to give in, that he freely wanted to repent, that he freely wanted to let the Jewish people go. He just would have been overwhelmed by pain. He would have done anything just to absolve himself and remove the pain. And therefore, Hashem says, I don't want him to do that. That would be a meaningless repentance. That would be a meaningless act. It's only meaningful if Paro could truly go either way and will choose the right thing. And therefore, Hashem says, I'm not going to allow the plagues to rob Paro of his free choice. If left to his own devices, left to the natural course of events, the plagues were so overwhelming and so painful, they would have robbed, just the experience of the plagues would have robbed Paro of any real choice but to give in. So therefore, say Ramban, say Sforno, Hashem, so to speak, does involve himself, but not to remove Paro's free choice, but on the contrary, to maintain his free choice. Hashem stepped in to, so to speak, give him a stiff upper lip, to harden his heart in the sense of giving him the strength to withstand the pain, to then do what he really wanted. He would have been overwhelmingly letting them go, but not had a free choice. Hashem stiffened his upper lip, gave him the extra strength so that he could be a 50-50, and then he unfortunately made the wrong choice. Last but not least is the approach of the Rambam. The Rambam, the one who celebrates free choice, of course has to acknowledge these psukim and the challenge they present. And in Hilchos Tshuva in Perigvav, the Rambam has a lengthy discussion explicitly addressing these psukim, and he basically takes the psukim, unlike any of the previous approaches we've seen, he takes them at face value. Yes, indeed, Hashem intervened and took away Paro's free choice. How could that be? How could Paro deserve to be punished? Says the Rambam, of course that didn't happen initially. The first five plagues, Paro had a free choice. It's only in the last five plagues that Hashem took away his free choice. And the explanation, says the Rambam, is because there could be times and places in human history in which a person does a sin which is so grave and severe, or a series of sins which cumulatively are so severe, that in fact Hashem takes away the free choice as a punishment. Free choice is not a... Uh, inalienable right that you can always have. It is a gift from Hashem, and if you squander it, Hashem reserves the right to take it away. If the opening of Parshas Ve'era sounds familiar, that's because in many ways it is. Just as we read about last week, once again, Hashem wants Moshe to confront Paro and lead the Jewish people to freedom. And once again, Moshe demurs. He is hesitant. And once again, Moshe claims that he is not a good speaker, won't be effective. And once again, Hashem reassures Moshe that not only Aaron, but more importantly, God himself will be with him. And yet for all that is the same, there is one crucial difference. This time, it works. As we read in Perek Zion, Pasuk Vav, Vaya'as Moshe v'aharon kasher tziva Hashem osam keinasu. Moshe and Aaron accept the responsibility Moshe begins the mission. 
The narrative then continues with Moshe and Aaron actually confronting Paro, and eventually when Paro was not cooperative, the start of all of the plagues. What is most curious, however, is that right before, right before the continuation of the storyline, the Torah pauses, as it were, and tells us the ages of Moshe and Aaron. In the immediate next pasuk, Perak Zion, pasuk Zion, Moshe ben Shmonim Shana, Aaron ben Shalosh Ushmonim Shana, Vidabram el Paro. Moshe was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they first spoke to Paro. The difficulty is obvious. Why do we need to know how old Moshe and Aaron were? And why does the Torah break the flow of the story to tell us their ages at this specific moment? Rav Zalman Sarotskin, in his beautiful commentary, Oznayim Torah, suggests that a powerful and relevant lesson emerges from this seemingly trivial pasuk. According to Chazal, Moshe authored 11 chapters of Tehillim, starting with Parakatsadi, chapter 90, Tefillah Lamoshe. In the middle of that very parak, we read that, A normal lifespan is 70 years. And with strength, 80 years. Rav Sarotskin notes, therefore, that it is striking that it was precisely at the age of 80, when Moshe had every reason to assume that his life was truly winding down, that he actually begins his career. All of the major achievements in Moshe's life, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Kriyas Yamsuf, Matan Torah, leading the Jewish people through the desert, they all begin after Moshe reaches an age where even Bigvuros, even those lucky to live to that exalted age, could not have expected to live much longer. In other words, Moshe's example teaches us that Judaism does not believe in a retirement age. On the contrary, says Rav Sarotskin, Kozman she'mazkinim mosifim omits belimud ubatikun midosa. As we grow older, we must exert even greater effort to increase our learning and improve our spiritual station and character. This was an especially appropriate message in our generation when thankfully life expectancy is growing longer and longer. While the time may come in every person's life to slow down or even retire from the rat race, from the professional responsibilities, when it comes to their religious responsibilities, to avodat Hashem, then no matter the age and no matter how much a person has already accomplished, there's always more that can and must be done. Moshe's achievements in the final third of his life Remind us that every stage of life, not just our younger years, are ripe for spiritual accomplishment and growth. In addition to this beautiful idea, I would like to add that perhaps there is another related lesson which also we can glean from Moshe's life. What is truly amazing about Moshe is not how much he achieved after he turned 80, but, with all due respect, how modest his accomplishments had been until then. Prior to speaking to Hashem in the burning bush, Moshe was perhaps best known not for anything he did, but for being the baby who was rescued by the princess and then raised in the palace. True, he once defended a fellow Jew and killed an Egyptian guard, but certainly, by any objective measure, he had a thin resume. This is something that we should all consider, because too often we use past success as the only predictor of future achievement. As a result, people who have had less success when they were younger, presume, and also others assume about them, that their future will be much the same, modest. Moshe's biography teaches us that this is a critical mistake. 
The past does not limit the future. Nothing in Moshe's past could have predicted the great things that he would eventually accomplish. Who would have guessed, based on the first 80 years, that Moshe would become Adon Hanavi'im, the greatest prophet in history? Who could have foreseen that the man who was Kvad Peh had difficulty speaking to others would become the person who spoke to God, Peh El Peh, with unrivaled intimacy? What a critical lesson for us and for our children. No matter how old we are, or no matter what we have, or have not done previously, there's no limit to what we can still achieve. We must learn from the past, but we should not be held back by, or held hostage by it. The arc of Moshe's life, productive and growing until the end, thus serves as an ideal model for us all to aspire towards. The opening of our parsha, Hashem appears to Moshe and he tells him as follows: The Eira el Avraham el Yitzchak of el Yaakov bekel Shakai, Ushmi Hashem lo nodati lehem. I appeared to your forefathers Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov through the name Kel Shakai. However, my name Yudkevoke, my name Hashem lo nodati lehem. That I never made known to them. What exactly is going on? What's the difference? What name we call Hashem? What name he used when he spoke to the various great biblical heroes? After all, we're a monotheistic faith. We believe in only one Hashem. What's the difference? What name is used? And of course, that just begs the question, why does the Torah use different names in different places uh, for Hashem? In order to understand this, I think we need to work with the assumption, an assumption that is made explicit by Chazal in a medrash earlier on in Shmos Rabbah, that the general idea and the premise is that the different names of God refer to different aspects of His character as it is perceived by human beings through His actions. Hashem reveals different dimensions of His personalities, like everyone does, Hashem reveals different aspects of His personality through His actions, and the way we perceive Hashem through His actions are referred to in different ways by the different names. Well, if that's the case, and the, the Medrash's term is very succinct and very powerful, God says, I will be called by my actions. So if that's the case, just like other names of God, the two names that are mentioned in our Parsha, and in our Pasuk, Kel Shakai and Yudke Vavke, Hashem, evidently refer to different aspects of Hashem's personality. Well, what is the different aspects that are being referred to, and what is the significance of the fact that one related to the Avos, and one specifically is now for the first time being introduced to Moshe? So Chazal, in a very beautiful passage, explain this, both in Shmos Rabbah here in our Parsha, Parsha Vav, as well as the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Kuf Yud Aleph, Amad Aleph. And in fact, the different parts of this Medrash are actually included in two different Rashis here in the beginning of Parsha's Ve'era. One in Pasuk Gimel, the Pasuk we read, as well as in a few Pesukim later in Pasuk Tes, Rashi, so to speak, uh, finishes the discussion. And in so doing, the Medrash, if you put it all together, in explaining these different names, the Medrash also clearly understands this as a somewhat of a criticism of Moshe Rabbeinu. And more important for us than the criticism is the larger message that was being conveyed to Moshe, and through that, to all of us. And the Medrash basically assumes the following, and the way the Medrash makes clear that there is a preference or a hierarchy for the way the Avos dealt with Hashem in this sense is, the Medrash begins and says, Chaval al-da'avdin v'lo 
right? It's so regrettable. What was to me, Hashem says, on those who were lost, meaning the others who have since passed away, and they haven't been found, or they will not soon be found, meaning that's to say they won't be soon replaced. Moshe is not living up to the Avos and what they were able to do in a certain dimension. What is that? So the Medrash goes on to explain and says, listen, I revealed myself, God says, to the Avos many, many times with the name Kel Shakai. In each of those times, the Medrash gives examples, both about Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. It was with promises for the future Kinyan, the future permanent foothold that the Jewish people, the descendants of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, would have in the land of Israel. And yet, says the Medrash, despite the fact that Hashem made these promises many times with the name Kel Shakai, they actually never were permanently fulfilled in the lifetime of the Avos. The Medrash goes on to give Sukkim and examples of all three of our Avos, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, in which they had various struggles, some more or less minor, but struggles in their lifetime that related to things that they wanted, that they needed, that they deserved in the land of Israel. And the very fact that they struggled is indicative of the fact that despite Hashem's promise, the promise had not yet been delivered. They did not yet have that permanent foothold in the land of Israel. And says the Medrash, despite this fact, that They got the promises, but they never saw the promises fulfilled. And yet, They never complained, they never said, But you promised, but you promised. In other words, what is the Medrash telling us first and foremost? That the name Kel Shakai refers to God as the promise maker. When he's making a promise for the future, Hashem is referred to as Kel Shakai. And the Avos received many great promises from Hashem, and none greater than the promise that they all received about the Jewish people's permanent home in the land of Israel. However, Hashem says to Moshe, Shmi Hashem Lonodati, the name of Hashem Yudkei Vavkei, that is not about making a promise, but about fulfilling the promise. And Moshe, you are the first one who is communicated with that name. That I'm using that name with you now, as if to say and conveying to Moshe that the time is now. After all those years of waiting for the promise to be fulfilled, the time has come, Hashem says, to fulfill the promise. Go to Egypt, liberate the Jewish people, because Yudke Vavke, all those promises of Kel Shakai that were given to the Avos, now hundreds of years later, they are ready to be fulfilled with the name Yudke Vavke. And the Medrash continues and explains in a critical way about Moshe, that despite the fact that the Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov had hundreds of years of promises which they never saw actually fulfilled, nevertheless, Hashem says, but earlier, we read this in last week's Parsha, right when I met you, so to speak, says Hashem, right when I gave you the command to go to Egypt, right away, you already asked me, what is my name? Unlike the Avos, Lo Mashimi. The Avos never questioned me. They never asked me for that Yudke Vavke name. They never said, no, when is the promise going to be fulfilled? We're waiting and we're waiting. And yet you, You right away asked me in last week's Parsha and Parakei, what is my name when I go to Parah? What name should I tell them? And therefore says the Medrash in continuation, that's where the next Pasuk comes in. Where the Pasuk says that Hashem says, I remember the bris, the covenant I made with the Avos, Gam HaKimosius, Brisi, Itam, Laseslam, Saritz, Kanan. Right away that's mentioned in the next Pasuk because Hashem says, I am coming to you now for you to fulfill and help me fulfill the promise I made all those years ago to the Avos. And the Medrash concludes and says that 
the fact that Hashem is finally liberating the Jewish people, even though this wasn't the greatest generation. We know Chazal in many places are critical of the generation of the Jews that lived in Egypt. They were not on the highest spiritual level, but nevertheless says Hashem in this Medrash, I am going to liberate them and redeem them and fulfill my promise, not because they deserve it, but in the merit of the Avos who trusted me after all those years, even though they didn't see the fulfillment of the promise. When Hashem instructs Moshe on what to tell the Jewish people when he gives them the news of their impending freedom and liberation, he says as follows. You read in this week's Parsha, Perek Vav, Pasuk Vav, L'chein emor l'vnei Yisrael. This is the famous declaration Moshe has instructed to give the Jewish people and tell them, Ani Hashem, I am the Lord your God, I will take you out, I will free you from the burdens of Egypt. And I will save you from their work. I will liberate you, I will redeem you, with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now this is a famous pasuk followed up by other psukim which also famously use what we often refer to as the various lishonos of Geula. But I want to call your attention to the first part of our pasuk where the two initial phrases of Geula actually seem somewhat redundant. What is the difference between Hotseisi eschem mitachas sivlosam and vihitsalti eschem mevodasam? What's the difference between being hitsalti from the avoda and the first phrase hotseisi from the sivlos? Seems to be all somewhat, if not exactly, the same thing. So Rashi explains that Sivlos, the first phrase, actually refers to Torah Maasei Mitzrayim. That is to say, it's not referring to the back-breaking labor itself, but rather the feeling that the Jewish people had that they are duty-bound, obligated to the Egyptians, even at times that they were not working. Based on this insight of Rashi, the Sfasemes, in a beautiful essay, explains that in fact there are two aspects to slavery. In his words, Beis Chalukos Halalu. There are two different dimensions of the slavery that the Jewish people were suffering from, and therefore two different dimensions of the liberation or the freedom that they needed to undergo. On the one hand is the actual physical labor. On the other hand, says the Sfasemes, there is the slave mentality. Not physical servitude, but mental. The mentality and the self-perception of, I am a slave. The Sassambas continues and says, more broadly, Any time a person is involved in any kind of physical labor, some of that physicality, the chomriyut, the gashmiyut, rubs off and becomes attached to us. Says the Svasemis, we must always be aware of that and do our best not to be overwhelmed by this, not to allow that to become a permanent part of us. We have to do our best to remove that in any way we can. He continues and he explains that there's obviously a certain dilemma here. On the one hand, we must use our bodies to do all sorts of physical things. At the same time, the more we do so, we risk forgetting our essence, our true selves, our neshama. The fact that who we really are is not our body and our physicality, but our spirit and our soul. With the overwhelming 
and near constant work that the Jewish people had to do in Egypt, they were really enslaved, says the Sfas in both dimensions. Not only physically, but also spiritually and psychologically. And this, explains the Sfas this is what Rashi was referring to when he said, Torah Masai Mitzrayim. It wasn't just the backbreaking labor, that's the second part of the Pasuk, Avodasam, but even the feeling, the identity, the mentality of being a slave. He goes on to quote his grandfather, the famed Chidushi Harim, who explains homiletically and so beautifully that when the Pasuk says, Mitachas Sivlos Mitzrayim, which we translate as the burdens, Sivlos, says the Chidushi Harim, Sivlos is also Milashon Lisbol. Lisbol means being willing to accept or to tolerate. That is to say, says the Chidush Arim, that Jewish people had gotten to a point that they had accepted and became tolerant of the fact that they were slaves. They had made their peace with being slaves. And says the Chidush Arim, explained by his grandson, the Svasemes, the first step in their liberation was They have to be extricated from the mentality of being willing to tolerate slavery, being willing to tolerate being enslaved. Over time, the Jewish people had come to accept their reality. They had made peace with it. Their spirit was broken. They identified themselves as slaves. And the first thing they needed to be saved from was this mentality. Once their spirit was liberated, the slave mentality was broken. Then they could actually be freed from the physical work. But had they been taken out of Mitzrayim, had they had only been freed from the work, but not had their minds liberated and their souls re-energized and refreshed, it wouldn't have mattered. Had they not first had the Hotseisi mitachas sivlos Mitzrayim, had they not begun to see themselves as free people and not be willing to tolerate the servitude, had that not happened, and all of a sudden just Hashem took them out, which of course He could have, it wouldn't have helped. They would have been free on the outside, but they would have remained enslaved on the inside. First the Egyptians broke their backs, then the Egyptians broke their spirit. In order for the Jewish people to truly be free, Hashem is telling Moshe, instructing the people, the process of rehabilitation requires a reverse engineering. First, free the mind, liberate the spirit. And afterwards, then we can have Hitzalti Eschem Then you'll not only be free physically, but most importantly, free spiritually as well. The Talmud Yerushalmi in Arve Psachim, the 10th parakamasech Psachim in the opening Gemara, gives a number of reasons for the obligation to drink the Arba Kosos, the four cups of wine which we drink at the Seder. Among the reasons that are given, the most famous is one which we are all familiar with because Rashi on our Gemara, the Bartanura on the Mishnah quote this, is the reason that the four cups of wine correspond to the four, the Arba Lashonos of Geula that are mentioned at the outset of our Parsha. Hashem tells Moshe to communicate to the Jewish people that we redeem them and liberate them from Egypt. And we have multiple, in fact, four different terms that are used. These are the four terms of Geula that are used. The Arba Lashonos of Geula says the Gemara. This is the basis 
for the Arbakosos. Now, it should be clarified that the simple understanding of that Gemara is not that it's an actual bona fide source, but rather it's an asmachta, it's an illusion, or a remez, a hint. But in fact, we generally assume, and this is actually explicit in the Talmud Bavli, Imsachem, Kufiyot, Zayin, Imadbet, that it's explicit, and we assume that the Arbakosos are actually only a rabbinic mitzvah. So if they're only a Takana, a Dinder Abanan, what does it mean that the Arba Lashonot of Geula are the source? The answer is it's not really that they're the source, as much as it's not Smachta or a Remez to the four cups. Why do we have four? Because of the four Lashonot of Geula. But yes, it was instituted by the rabbis, it's not a Dinder Raisa. An interesting side question, parenthetically, should be asked, um, and that is, even if we have four, because of the four Lashonot of Geula or any of the other reasons, but why Dafka cups of wine? Why not four of something else? Why not four matzahs or something like that? So there is an answer, a very beautiful answer, that was suggested a little over 50 years ago by Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach uh, in a shir that he gave, and it's been quoted in a number of the svarim of Rav Shlomo Zalman, and now recently even in other svarim, that explains as follows. The four Lashonas of Geula uh, were not randomly chosen, and they're certainly not identical or even synonymous. Rather, each word describes a subtly different stage in the redemption. Not only are the different stages of the redemption, they are each progressively and increasingly greater in their redemption and their liberation. It may have started with the Hotsesi, but then it got better. It wasn't just Hotsesi mitacha sivlos mitraim, but it was better. Hitzalti eschem, totally freedom from the avodah, from the slavery. And not only that, better than that, vigaalti, you could go free. But not only will you be free, lakachti eschem li la'am, you'll become my chosen people. So each one of the terms, says Rosh Hashanah, is not just different, but it's an increasingly greater liberation and freedom. Says Rosh Hashanah, most foods, when you eat them, the first piece or the first sample that you have is the most delicious and the most enjoyable. And then it only goes down from there. However, one thing is unique about wine. If a person who actually enjoys wine and appreciates wine, with each cup, a person becomes even more happy and more joyful. And therefore, says Rosh Hashanah, wine is the perfect item to express the progress of cherus, of redemption. That just like each stage got better and better, each cup we enjoy more and more. In terms of the halachos of the Arbakosos, there's really a tremendous amount of literature, but briefly to mention two aspects of the mitzvah of Arbakosos. The first is that the Mishnah there in the beginning of Arve Psachim, as well as the Gemara a little bit later on, develops the idea that there is a unique chumrah, a stringency when it comes to Arbakosos, despite the fact that it's only rabbinic mitzvah. And that chumrah, that stringency, is that a poor person must do everything he can in order to fulfill the mitzvah Arbakosos, and his poverty and his limited amount of money is simply not an excuse. And therefore, based on the Mishnah and the Gemara, the Shulchan Aruch rules that a poor person must go so far as to even borrow money, hire himself out, or if necessary, sell the clothes off his back in order to have enough money to be able to purchase the wine for Arbakosos. This psak, which is, again, based on the Mishnah and the Gemara, is actually extended without any Talmudic source, but extended by the Rambam, in Hilchos Hanukkah, and the Rambam says that just like by Dal Kosos, it is also true by Neros Hanukkah that a poor person must do everything he can, even to sell the shirt off his back, to get candles for Hanukkah. And there, and there in that context, in Hilchos Hanukkah, the Magad Mishnah explains that the Rambam learned this from Arba Kosos. What's the common denominator? What's the link between the four cups of wine and Hanukkah? Says the Magad Mishnah that both of them are mitzvahs of Persumei Nisa, of publicizing the miracle. Persumenisa, when it comes to Arba Kosos, is to our family, the Chabura, the people we're having Seder with, and of course Hanukkah outside, 
to the entire world in the public. The question is, even if it's for a person Isa, that doesn't really explain, answer the question, it just kind of begs it. Why does that matter? Why should we be more machmir with these two mitzvos? So you tell me because of Persumenisa. But so what? Why does Persumenisa make it more machmir? So the Abnei Nezer, in a very important tshuva, explains that usually when we say poverty is an onus, it's an excuse for not doing the mitzvah, it's actually more than that. If a person really wants to do the mitzvah, the only thing holding them back is they don't have the money, says the Abnei Nezer, we view that, it's considered as if he fulfilled the mitzvah. Amazing. However, says Abnei Nezer, that's only limited to regular mitzvos. But mitzvos that are pesume nisa, where the goal is not just to do the mitzvah, but to communicate, to publicize the miracle to people around you. So then, even if you have a good excuse, but if you didn't do it, for whatever the reason, doesn't matter how good your excuse is, but if you didn't do it, bottom line, uvda, the desired publicity, the desired result, simply was not met, it did not occur. Therefore, suggests Avni Nezer, being poor does not excuse you from fulfilling the mitzvah, and therefore you must beg or borrow or do whatever you can in order to get the money to fulfill this mitzvah. A final note, interesting question, some posts can ask, why don't we make a birkat ha-mitzvah before drinking the four cups? We say bari pragafen, but that just allows us to drink just like we would during the week or at any other point. But if this is a mitzvah to drink the wine, shouldn't we have a bracha beforehand, asher kereshanu b'mitzvah lishtos arba kosos, or something like that? So one answer is suggested that by a number, a number of sources, the Maribruna, the Pricharash, and really first the Orzarua, that we only make brachos on mitzvahs that occur all at once. But a mitzvah which is done in parts, or there's an interruption, a hefzik, in between them, even if it's a necessary interruption, we can't make a bracha on that. And when it comes to Arba Kosos, we know we don't drink it all at once. We break it up into parts with the Haggadah in the middle. The Chasam Sofer explains, because we're worried that if you made the bracha before on the first or the second cup, what if something happened and you couldn't finish, you didn't have all four cups? And therefore, we only make brachas where you can do all at once a mitzvah. But if you have to break it up in different parts, like the four cups, then we don't make a bracha a mitzvah. Everyone has a breaking point, and Paro has finally reached his. Paro, in Perches, Sukim Chafalaf and Chafbez, has a conversation with Moshe. He calls Moshe and Aaron to him, and he says, Listen, I get it, fine, you can go, I give you permission, take the people, you can do what you've been asking for, go and worship your God, Shech, Zivchu, bring your sacrifices to your God, but he says, Baaretz, do it in Egypt, I'm not letting you leave. And Moshe responds and says, Lo nachon We can't do that. After all, what would the Jews be sacrificing? What would they be shechting? Animals that the Egyptians themselves worshipped. Says Moshe to Paro, you can't ask us, you can't expect us to worship our God by sacrificing, by shechting these animals, the gods of the Egyptians, in front of their eyes, in front of the Egyptians' eyes, below Yiskalunu, and they're not going to shecht us? They're not going to kill us, excuse me? They're not going to stone us? We'll be putting ourselves in danger. There is a powerful question, I think, that one can ask on this uh, conversation, specifically Moshe's response, which is implicitly found in the words of the Chassam Sofer. Uh, he doesn't ask it explicitly, but as we shall see, his explicit uh, commentary on this Pasuk is clearly a answer to this question, although, as I say, it's more implicit in the Chassam Sofer's words. And that is, when did all this happen? This was after four plagues had already decimated and destroyed Egypt. So why is Moshe afraid? Paro and the Egyptians have been humbled. They've been brought to their knees. That's what brought Paro to invite Moshe and make this offer to begin with. 
What is he worried about? After all of this, and when Paro himself had given permission to the Jews to sacrifice in Egypt, would the Egyptians have the guts? Would they even dare? Would it dawn on them to attack the Jews when, after having seen what they just saw for four plagues and the permission of Paro? It's not realistic, this fear. It's, it's neurotic. It doesn't make any sense. There's nothing to be scared of. And if, if, if he was scared, why would Moshe admit that at this very point to Paro? He has all the leverage. So again, without saying this question explicitly, the Chassam Sofer begins his commentary on this Pasuk with the words, Yesh Lomar. He's coming to give an answer, even though he didn't explicitly ask a question. But we can see what his question clearly was. Because what's his answer, says the Chassam Sofer? What's his interpretation of this Pasuk? When Moshe tells this to Paro, He's not saying that we would actually be scared, that we're worried that there's an actual fear, that there's an actual threat that they might actually stone us. Not at all. But rather, says the Chasam Sofer, Eino roi lanu It's not the right thing to do. It's unnecessarily cruel and therefore un- immoral to spit in the face, as it were, to the Egyptians for no reason. Again, there were a lot of things that were done that were very harsh to the Egyptians, because they had to be done. But if it doesn't have to be done, then why do so? That's not musardik. That's not moral. That's not ethical. There's no reason, says the Chassam Sofer, to kill their deity in front of them. We'd be driving them crazy, he says. And they'd want to kill us, but they knew they wouldn't be able to. They'd know they wouldn't be able to, and that itself would drive them even more crazy and torture them even more. Even though they wouldn't harm us, there was no actual fear, but their powerlessness would itself frustrate them. And that would not be proper. Mitzad hamusser says the chasam sofer. Bechosos lo nuchal miderach hamusser laasos kazeh. In other words, says the chasam sofer. When Moshe Rabbeinu begins his response to Paro and says lo nachon, he's not saying it can't be done. It's too risky. He's saying from a moral perspective, from an ethical perspective, from a musser perspective, it's not the right thing to do. And therefore, we need to leave the country in order to worship our God. Rav Pam in a number of his works, has a very, very important Musr idea. It's really central, I think, if I may say so, from what I understand, uh, to Rapam's whole gestalt, his whole uh, worldview, and very fascinating and very important uh, Musr approach, which, in at least some of his sources, he anchors to this Chasam uh, Sofer, but it's much broader, as we'll see in a moment. And that is, says Rapam, this idea that the Chasam Sofer is articulating is an example of, of what is known as Mishkal HaChasidus. That is to say, the need to weigh Mishkal, to weigh the impact and the broader imp- uh, consequences, and the bigger picture, often unintended consequences, of our actions in our pursuit of Chasidus. Of course, we should pursue Chasidus in the sense of spiritual aspiration, religious maximalism, always trying to grow. But as we do that, it can't be on the back of others. We have to look at a broader, bigger picture and appreciate uh, what the might intended consequences be of our actions. And what may look like an act of chasidus at first glance is not always the case. As Rapam himself quotes, perhaps the most uh, important and consequential presentation of this broader idea is in the Mesil Shisharim, who dedicates an entire chapter, Per Chaf, to this idea of Mishkal HaChasidus. And the Mesil Shisharim brings many sources that make this broader point we have to look carefully, not just be suffice with our initial, more superficial glance. Oh yeah, this looks like a chomer, this looks like a, a chasidus. But rather, always be weighing the broader picture. So, for example, 
the Mishnah in Brachos that says that the Chachamim were very critical of Rabbi Tarfon when he was machmir on himself and followed the position of Beishamai that when it comes to Kriyashma, at night you have to lie down when you're saying it and during the day you have to stand up. And Rabbi Tarfon said that when he was machmir like Beishamai, he almost got himself killed by bandits on the road at night. And the Chachamim responds very Cruelly and surprisingly, you deserved it because you were being machmir like Beishamai. Says Masil Shisharam, what are you talking about? Why did he deserve it? All he was doing was being machmir like Beishamai. What's so bad? Vosas Geschlecht. So says the Masil Shisharim. No, what the Chachamim are telling us is once you have a psak, a long debate between Beishamai and Beishil has finally been resolved. If you were now going to follow Beishamai, even though the Gemara did, the psak was like Beishil, we're risking a schism. You will be like the two Toros. There's a broader picture. And you're a little. A limited view, it looks like. This is a chasidus to be machron like by Shammai. But in our broader view, the mishkala chasidus, you have to know there are other factors. So that's one example. And many examples of benam lachaveros, says Rapam, and as well as the Mitzvah Susharim. For example, the halacha that a child is not allowed to pursue all sorts of voluntary chumras if they will distress his parent. A parent can tell a child not to keep a halacha, but in pursuit of a chumra, of a chasidus, taking into account your parents' feelings. Moreover, you can't, what if, what a chumrah that you're going to do is going to bring machlokas? He quotes Rapam the Nitziv about how terrible that is. Or what if you're going to hurt your feelings of your wife or your spouse or your husband or your children, etc.? Always keep that in mind when you're pursuing. That's the Mishkal of Chasidus.